Very, very welcome to this evening, which I think is going to be a very memorable evening. We are having some technical challenges, but I think now we have uh, the foreign minister also uh, on, on video. So my name is uh, Eric Berghoff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs here at LSE, and we are hosting uh, this event together with the Center for Women, Peace and Security, which is uh, one of the centers uh, under IGA. So I, I returned from uh, Academ and, and joined the LSE in February and from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. On my second day of work, I was asked to take part in the opening of uh, the Center for Women, Peace and Security and with no one less than uh, the then Foreign Secretary William Hague and Angelina Jolie Pitt, as she emphasized. Uh, so that was um, the, the opening of that center, and the center was open to, uh, on the, to mark the, 20, the 15th anniversary of the United Nations Security Council uh, Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security. It was an exciting beginning to what is a very exciting project to build this Institute of Global Affairs here at the LSE. So the IGA was created to bring together faculty and students across uh, disciplines, across regions, to think about and act on global challenges like, like climate, migration, health, security, and finance, always remembering that for every global challenge, you need to understand the global context, uh, the local context, and connecting the global and the local is, is critical to what IDA does. And this Center for Women, Peace, Security is very much in that spirit. It's about finding locally rooted solutions to, to deal with uh, important challenges. We believe this is a very special evening because we will be discussing very important topics and we have assembled a most remarkable constellation of speakers. A key European policymaker, a phenomenal activist, and a leading academic, all deeply committed to the Women, Peace, and Security agenda. So let me first introduce uh, the Swedish Foreign Minister, Margaret Wallström, who comes to us over video link. Hey. <laughs> So, so Margaret Wallström approaches uh, this topic with exceptional experience. She has worked locally and nationally in Swedish politics. She has been the vice president of the European Commission, and she has been on the international scene as the UN Special Envoy on uh, sexual violence against women in conflict. And when the new government took office last year, she surprised the world by announcing that Sweden from then on had a feminist foreign policy uh, and shining a much-needed spotlight on the agenda of women, peace, and security. She is a major moral voice around the world for the women's issues and, uh, of course, now, very importantly, uh, in the migrant crisis, which she has been urging fellow European policymakers to come together and recognize uh, common values. We are very honored to have you here and taking time, that you take time to, to talk to us tonight. 
You will do so in conversation with uh, an LSE alumna, the wonderfully charismatic Zainab Salvi. Uh, she is uh, the founder of Women for Women, an organization that by now had helped close to 430,000 women who have been exposed to, to conflict and sexual violence around the world. Zainab herself, a victim uh, of sexual violence, has inspired women and men around the world and, uh, to support uh, these women and provided valuable on-the-ground evidence to policymakers. I think no one can resist her, her vision, her unique perception and spiritual energy. She has certainly been a great inspiration for me over the years. In her latest incarnation as the Oprah of the Middle East, Zainab has launched a talk show which is televised across the Middle East and where Oprah herself appeared in the first uh, installment. And Zainab, we are very pleased to have you here um, back at the LSE. So Mark Wallström and Zainab Salvi will have a conversation, but I'm delighted to be joined here on stage with my co-chairwoman, Professor Christine Chinkins. She's a professor... She is a professor of international law here at LSE, but she was also the uh, University of Michigan Law School professor uh, of uh, global law. In her work, she has shown that international law to date has largely ignored the fundamental issues of, of gender inequality and tended to marginalize women in both its formal and informal institutions. Far from challenging the global uh, oppression of women, international law has upheld the unequal position around the world. Christine has single-handedly changed the way international law is taught and practiced around the world. It's an honor to have Christine as a colleague and a partner in the building of the Institute of Global Affairs. So I would like, before I hand over to Christine, uh, just to add a personal note, because I, I came back from policymaking and crisis response, and I had the Pleasure then to draw on the resources, the fantastic resources uh, of LSE and its faculty and students for that matter, and faculty like Christine. So it's a real honor for me now to be back in academia, play a part in helping to bring some of these, uh, this knowledge and this experience into policy making uh, and here in, in the UK but also around the world. So before we go to Zainab and the Foreign Minister, Christine, you, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you, Eric. Thank you very much for that um, very warm introduction. Um, can I welcome you all on behalf of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, um, as well as the... I'm not quite sure how this co-chairing works, yeah, Eric, no. but anyway, we will, we will work it together. Um, as Eric has just indicated, the Centre, and I'm sure many of you already know that, was launched earlier this year in February... And it was established essentially out of two separate foreign policy initiatives. One was the foreign policy initiative of former Foreign Secretary William Hague and Ms. Angelina Jolie-Pitt, the Prevention of Sexual Violence and Armed Conflict Initiative, PSVI, as it's usually called. It was a foreign policy initiative of the UK government. It sort of spread much wider than that um, through, for example, the G8 declaration, through the declaration on um, prevention of sexual sexual violence in armed conflict, which has now been endorsed by some 150 states. So it's become quite a major sort of theme in foreign policy. 
The second is the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, um, which is the agenda that has brought issues relating to women and armed conflict into the Security Council's agenda with respect to the maintenance of international peace and security. So much the amazement of many of us essentially bringing women's issues into the top United Nations body, the Security Council. Um, I think that this emphasizes that the, um, the impact on security and instability of sexual and gendered violence in conflict, both on communities and on the international scene, international peace and security, and that the issue is a global issue, I think is again shown by our location in the Institute of Global Affairs that Eric has just talked about, and that we can work with the various regional centers in the Institute to ensure sort of gender input into the various aspects um, of um, regional centers' work. Uh, It's a very important moment for women, peace, and security. Again, as many of you who've been talking about it all day, we've had an all-day workshop um, co-hosted by the Centre, by Women for Women International, your former organisation, and by the Gender Action Group of Peace and Security, GAPS, the Civil Society, UK-based group on issues of women, peace, and security. Uh, Throughout the day, we have been discussing the challenges presented by the global study on women, peace, and security, a major research and consultative study that was presented to the Security Council a couple of weeks ago, followed by a debate. We were told today that more states participated in the debate of the Security Council than have ever before participated in a thematic debate before the Security Council. At the very least, states were engaging with the issues of women, peace, and security. So we've been... um, discussing various issues, particularly around the importance of prevention of um, sexual violence and other aspects of um, gendered harm in armed conflict, on women's participation, both pre-conflict and then particularly peace agreements and post-conflict reconstruction, issues around violence against women, both um, during conflict and outside conflict, and then um, a sort of wrap-up session looking at what are the challenges for taking the Women, Peace and Security agenda further beyond the 15-year anniversary of its origins in Security Council Resolution 1325. I think the overwhelming feeling at the end of the day perhaps are two basic challenges. The first is how do we match the rhetoric of what is now a very serious agenda through the Security Council, eight Security Council resolutions, Uh, laying out a lot of aspects of um, prevention, participation, um, accountability, relief, recovery, what are called the the pillars of women, peace and security. How do we turn that into reality? What the big gap between what is said and what is actually occurring on the ground? And I think that leads to the second challenge, which is that the Security Council is essentially a very top-down institution, The Women, Peace and Security agenda began with women's non-governmental organisations, women's lobbying. It came into the Security Council and in a sense it's now been sort of formalised within a Security Council agenda. But again, its real impact has to be at the local level. And I think in terms of foreign policy, the Women, Peace and Security agenda is perhaps unique in being at the one hand top-down and the other hand global and on the other hand can only be effective locally. But... 
I've got two experts on foreign policy here um, who can talk far more about the broader issues of a feminist foreign policy. So I'll hand straight over. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be back to LSE. It was one of the happiest years of my life, actually, and to be back interviewing the, with honor and a great privilege, uh, Madam Minister. Um, she needs no introduction. Professor Eric already introduced her work and her dedication to civil servants and to women's rights since the 70s. She worked in all sectors of Swedish government, at the local level, national level, and then all the way to the UN, all with a dedication of women's rights and serving the people. But more than that, what is not perhaps what you cannot read about her in the news is that she's actually known um, among many circles, almost everyone I have asked about uh, Madam Minister, for her humble attitude, uh, accessibilities, uh, generosities of spirit. So it's a truly great pleasure to be interviewing you today. Thank you very, very much. Um, more important than all of that, you are a courageous woman. Um, I mean, the discussion whether we use the word feminism or women's rights or all of these is a contested discussion among women themselves, among feminist activists themselves. What's the best strategy, all of these things. And here you come, loud and bold and courageous, saying, oh, it's going to be a feminist foreign policy agenda. Um, how did you come? It, it takes courage, I must say, you know. Um, can you tell us more about that? How did you come to the conclusion that let's go at it unapologetically and let's claim it for what it is? I would love to hear some background from you on that. Thank you very much, uh, Sainab. Thank you uh, all uh, for inviting me. I wish I was there in person, but uh, it was not possible to, to travel to London. Uh, now we also have, as you know, a rather difficult uh, migration situation also in, in our country that we have to to deal with. Um, but uh, thank you all for, for uh, listening and uh, for, for having me, um, although uh, by, by video. Um, congratulations also to setting up the centers at uh, LSE. I, I have been there invited as a guest speaker before, and one of my proposals at that time when I was a, a special representative of the UN was to actually study the real economic costs of conflict-related sexual violence. Maybe this will be possible um, with uh, the centers that you have uh, uh, up and running by now. Um, that would be fantastic, and I can talk more uh, about that later. Um, <clears throat> well, I, you know, it has been said that... Um, Feminism is uh, the radical notion that women are people. I believe that human rights are, are women's rights. And, of course, how can you uh, have a foreign policy uh, without noting that there is uh, overall discrimination against women? Everywhere in the world there is also violence against women. Uh, women uh, do not have uh, a voice in many of the, for example, ongoing peace negotiations. So uh, to me, uh, and with the, the background and the knowledge that I carry uh, uh, with me, uh, it was a given thing to say that we have to make these issues uh, a matter of peace and security. Uh, it is not only about equality between women and men, it is really a matter of peace and security. And we declare that it's a feminist foreign policy as uh, <clears throat> a notion of... Um, 
making an analysis of the situation, but also saying that everything should be tested out from uh, words that start with an R. Uh, the rights of, of uh, women, uh, do they enjoy the same rights as, as men uh, everywhere? What about representation? Are they uh, around the table? Um, are they well represented, properly represented? And thirdly, uh, what about the resources? Are resources distributed also to women's needs? Do we ask them, women and in many cases that means also children, uh, what about uh, money going also to, uh, to them? Uh, so it's more of an analysis and uh, an instrument, a tool to use, rather than a, a ready set of, of uh, opinions or a ready set of, of actions. But of course we then follow up by an action plan that we will announce uh, now, uh, an inventory to all our embassies that have been asked to, to describe the situation, putting the gender uh, lens on, and uh, we have, um, of course, prepared a number of concrete proposals, and we apply it in the everyday policies. Um, for example, asking, uh, what about the women in the peace negotiations in Mali? Where were they? They were not around the table. They were not among the, the signatures of, of uh, the peace deal. What about what goes on right now in Libya? Where Have you seen... Libya or Syria, where are the women? Uh, and the guiding principle is nothing without them, nothing about them without them. Um, and um, so we follow up also on, for example, training women mediators and negotiators to uh, provide um, <coughs> women uh, in a network, um, hopefully Nordic women, but also maybe African women that can, can join never again to hear the argument that there are no women negotiators. Sorry, that's a long... Uh, Not at all. Actually, I'm, I mean, on the one hand, this is so inspiring. Any of us who worked in the field, this is a dream. What you're saying is a dream that we've always talked about, and here you are making it possible. And yet you got criticism, and I was surprised at the criticism you got was not necessarily only from certain countries, but actually from Western countries, uh, from uh, academics. Uh, for example, Robert Egnell, from a visiting professor at Georgetown University Security Studies Program, said a feminist perspective would be idealistic, naive, and potentially even dangerous in the realpolitik's power struggle between nations. What is your response to such criticism? No, no, no. He's one of our best uh, advocates. <laughs> that we, that we use the most because I think you have to read his whole piece uh, where he ends up uh, definitely being on the side okay. of, uh, of introducing a feminist foreign policy. Well, I, I keep uh, quoting uh, Gandhi because Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And I think this is exactly what we have to I think there was a giggling factor to begin with, but uh, it silenced very quickly. Uh, uh, it fell silent, and I think today we are instead respected for, for what we are doing. And I think it, it, it has to be translated into direct political action, meaning that we have to apply a feminist foreign policy to the situation that goes on in Ukraine when we provide humanitarian assistance, when we look at uh, 
what the European Union does. And we insisted to begin with to have a high-level person also in the EU, like in the UN system, uh, that can look at uh, uh, how women fare in, in everything that we are doing and to make sure that the Women, Peace and Security agenda is applied also uh, at the European level. So <clears throat> I think this is not something theoretical and I think the, the rhetoric and all these wonderful resolutions, they're only as good as their implementation. That's um, and I also believe that what we have in common um, is of course the understanding of, of conflict-related sexual violence because I think that that has become such a serious phenomenon and now what New York Times called also the theology of rape that uh, Daesh uh, uses um, in, in Syria and uh, Iraq that women all over the world just have to stand up as one and say enough is enough. This has to be stopped because it will hurt not only the individual but it will hurt uh, the family uh, uh, society, uh, uh, a nation and our whole humanity in the end if it is not stopped. Yes. And we know that uh, the, the three misunderstandings that we have to fight have to do with the fact that it is uh, seen as uh, either um, uh, inevitable because it has been a part of every conflict since the beginning of time, that it is unspeakable or that it is a lesser crime. And I think that this is still the the, the notion that we have to uh, to fight um, and we have to make sure that there is no impunity for this kind of, of crimes. Absolutely. What has been some of the financial and diplomatic impact on the feminist foreign policy, <laughs> and in, both internally and externally? Like, how has the Department of Defense, for example, um, responded to the policy. Considering well, Sweden is the 12th largest weapon manufacturer, I believe, in the world. So how has there been a conflict or not? No, it has not been a conflict because we, uh, we will look at, in every department has to look at how do we live up to, to the declaration that we are a feminist foreign policy. How do we uh, ensure that um, the rights and the representation and the resources are are uh, distributed and, and attributed in the, in the right way. So this is for every department to work on, on these issues, that they are integrated into all our policy areas. And, uh, of course, uh, it is not perfect. We have to, to struggle in, in all different areas to make sure that we live up to that and that we continue to present proposals that bring us closer to, to, uh, to the target. But uh, it is not... Um, because this is again, uh, you come back to the, the fact that some believe that if you're a feminist, you could not accept that we have a defense or a defense industry. But I mean, that's not the point again. It's, this is, a, uh, this is a, a, a method and a, a tool for uh, analyzing every uh, political, uh, political area. And as you know, we had, we had also a, a decision to finish, for example, our memorandum of understanding with Saudi Arabia, which was, uh, I think, the right decision to, to make. But it was a hard journey, if I may ask. It was not an, is it an easy journey to be morally consistent and in a world that is 
I mean, this is a genuine question, actually. Is it hard to be morally consistent in a world that is very complicated with, with trades yeah. and all of these things? And how have you navigated that? No, it is, it is extremely difficult to be, um, to be fighting for uh, democracy and human rights in today's world because I think we are, it is, these are issues that are pushed back and, uh, of course, with uh, 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 always uh, giving the economic uh, um, provisions sort of the, um, the first, that, that come in the first place. So I think uh, we see that around the world, um, um, also the free, free speech and journalists and those who speak the truth or those who defend uh, women f- feminism or or women's rights are the ones that are being attacked. So mm-hmm. it is not easy. No, nobody should believe that, but it is necessary. Absolutely, absolutely. How have your European counterparts um, responded to this? Do you think this encouraged other European countries to adopt a feminist uh, policy agenda, a foreign policy agenda? Yeah, I, th- I think it creates also a, a pressure or an example, and they will look at us with, with interest to see how it is then being translated into political action. And I hope they will be inspired by that. I, we have many uh, um, questions uh, and comments, and the interesting thing is that also countries where um, they still have a long way to go when their, for example, ambassadors or ministers come to see me, they, of course, have done their homework, so they have read everything about our feminist foreign policy. Very often they start by saying, and you know, now we have um, four more uh, women ministers in our uh, cabinet, or now we have uh, um, introduced this or that legislation, or now we have done so or so. So, I mean, it really pushes also the, uh, uh, the issues uh, in, in the right direction, hopefully. So it's uh, ins- inspiring to, to see. It's fantastic, actually. It's really fantastic. Do you think it helps Swedish candidacy at the Security Council membership, for the Security Council membership? I think that um, for, for, the secure, for a seat on the Security Council, you have to prove that you have a political agenda that is uh, uh, relevant uh, uh, to uh, um, the UN's member states. And I think... Uh, we will always have to discuss uh, substance, and this is uh, one issue that that will be important to to many countries. But uh, also our agenda when it comes to peacekeeping, peacemaking, um, uh, to um, discuss uh, the fact that we are one, we are the fifth biggest uh, donor of, of humanitarian assistance. We finance many of the UN. UN uh, bodies as well help to finance UN bodies. We are um, a, a loyal, although critical, friend of the UN, and I think that is what is uh, most important uh, for for countries who are supposed to vote for uh, on countries for a seat in the Security Council. You mentioned earlier that we need. I completely agree. By the way, we need more women in peace negotiations at medi- as mediators or in any other position. What do you do when they are not? I mean, what do you do if you are in a negotiation for any, I don't know, any country, let's say Libya, and there are no women there? What, what initiative do you take, or do you think you can take as a government, as a foreign well, government? No, sometimes I, I actually think it starts with somebody asking the question, where are the women? How could you once more forget or ignore 
uh, women um, as uh, representatives around the, the negotiation uh, table. So, um, and sometimes there are meetings where I'm hoping that others will ask the questions and not always me, but uh, if anybody else does, I will have to... I will have to ask or insist on women being uh, represented, or at least that we have a, a structure and a system and a way um, um, uh, to deal with, with these issues that, that take uh, that into account or to try to correct these, uh, these mistakes. It's, it's, uh, and of course, we did, for example, also in the United Nations, we arranged two side events just recently, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with uh, women from Mali uh, and women from Syria, who um, then sort of um, outside the the formal procedures and processes were invited to give their views, and I think that's what we can do. We can offer that platform if they are not re- until they are represented uh, also in the formal settings. Now, you recently visited my home country, Iraq. Where did you see any women there, and what were your impressions? Um, we, we met with quite a few women that actually spoke Swedish, uh, because you know we have a, a large diaspora <laughs> yes. in Sweden. Almost two uh, percent of our whole uh, population are of Iraqi origin. Yes. So um, um, I think that that means that we have influenced also many many uh, women, but of course this was at the core of our discussions as well. We asked to see representatives from civil society, journalists, we asked to see minority representatives, and uh, and that was uh, uh, very interesting. And always, if we see that there are groups of only men, we will ask, so why why, why don't you have also any any women representatives in, in your group? Because we, we discuss these issues uh, always, and the fact that what women um, told us was that the level of violence against the women has risen and is just, you know, terribly worrying. And um, what we could offer was then to, <clears throat> if they want to send um, people to, to Sweden to be uh, uh, given uh, training or if we can send um, experts to help them to, to deal with, uh, with this, to even to look at legislation if necessary or other resources that they need to address this problem. It's interesting because you know Sweden played a major role in Iraq in terms of accepting refugees, as you said. It's, you know, the country is known for its generosity among Iraqis. And I remember also a few years after the invasion of Iraq, Sweden also was the first country to say, open its embassy outside of the red zone, or outside of the green zone, in the red zone. It's like, how do we stabilize a country so people can go back to their countries? Do you think this has happened? Do you, I mean, what are your impressions of Iraq general, particularly because Sweden was particularly a very generous country towards Iraqis? Yeah, we continue, of course, with our humanitarian assistance and um, <clears throat> bilateral um, assistance for quite some time yet. Um, I, f- I find that um, the, there has to be a non-sectorist uh, policy. And, of course, I wish Abadi all success in, in ensuring that there is a, a non-sectorist policy. Uh, um, policy, an inclusive uh, process, but um, the fact that this is extremely difficult and the fact that uh, the oil prices have been going down mean 
also that uh, their economy is uh, um, um, <clears throat> very uh, very problematic. So all this taken and the security situation um, very dangerous means that they have. Uh, I don't know what to call it. It's a it's an enormous uh, challenge to uh, to the society and uh, to the leadership as as well. But again, <clears throat> somebody said that uh, that if you if you look at a country um, like uh, Tunisia, we had a, a state visit from from Tunisia to to Sweden, and those who visited Tunisia in the 70s came back and wrote a report saying that. This country is is doing uh, really well, and um, we think that it, it's because women have a prominent role in society. And I think countries that have, from the beginning, involved uh, women in uh, building a society will be stronger, will be more resilient, and um, uh, that's why it is so serious. If in the peace negotiations that goes on today or new leaderships formed if women are not represented. I think they will miss out. And we know from scientific proof that this is, uh, that this is the case. Um, there will be more options on, on a negotiating table. It will be more persistent uh, and the peace deal will last uh, longer, stand better chances to last uh, longer. Very true, very true. You started your remarks by talking about the refugee crisis and the pressure it has on Sweden. Um, I want to actually have a, a very sort of open and honest discussion about it. Being a, an Iraqi myself, uh, being from part of the world that is generating a lot of this crisis uh, lately, and recently I did an article talking to Syrian refugees in different parts of uh, Turkey and Syria, and they said that the, they said our drive. They said Europeans need us because this is good for their economic growth. This is how their economy is built on migrant labor, and this is good for it. There was my senses of it. It was um, a sense of uh, not entitlement, but a sense of, um, and this is not to dismiss the political pressure and the economic pressure, and and their search for dignity and integrity, but which they believe Europe can provide that, and they rank it with Germany and Sweden as one of the top uh, countries in that. Is that, tr- is that a truth, though? Is that, that, is, yeah, that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. We need um, uh, migrants. We need uh, these people to come to, to our country. They will be the ones who take care of us when we grow old, older and um, we uh, need them also to make our society more diverse and more exciting and more uh, lively and more uh, successful out of, of every aspect. We need to live in a society with tolerance and, and diversity. Um, but the thing is, of course, when as is the situation today, when we have so many Uh, children coming, unaccompanied children, for example, and a large proportion of the hundred, and I'm just looking at the figures, we have around 150,000 asylum seekers in the system as of of today, Um, and one-fifth or or more of them are uh, unaccompanied children. It means also that it is an enormous strain, of course, on our systems. We need to house them, we need to make sure that they can go to school, we need to treat their their traumas, we need to help them psychosocially and in every way. 
and we have to take care of them for, of course, um, many years. So it just puts, um, as it is today, with so many coming at the same time, it puts a, a strain on, on our systems. And, and this is why we are saying that we ought to help each other in the European Union and all countries in the European Union, because then it wouldn't be a problem if we could, in solidarity, also share the responsibility for these uh, uh, children, it would uh, work much better. But I have a few questions on that. And on one level, in terms of domestic growth, there are reports that are saying 42% of long-term unemployment in Sweden is immigrants, and 58% of welfare payments go to immigrants. Is there an issue? Is that... um, is just a matter of time? Is that a matter of integration or the challenges of integration? And again, it makes me question, and, you know, is it how, what is the long-term impact, this refugee crisis on Sweden five years from now in terms of no, economic stability? No, this is a very, very relevant question because what we have seen until now is that we have managed uh, also uh, earlier in our history to deal with a big influx of, of refugees like in the... Uh, uh, in the uh, 90s when we uh, received so many asylum seekers from from the Balkans and um, almost as many as, as we have uh, today, they were well integrated. But we it was easy then to house them. We had uh, apartments, we had uh, jobs to offer and um, um, it, it will take some time because on average it will take almost seven years to get fully sort of established and, and integrated and I think we have not succeeded in with the integration uh, phase uh, lately so it takes too long for, for people to find a job and of course now it means also that it will be more difficult to find even uh, um, school, schooling for, for all the, the children that, that come and uh, one or two years of delay when it comes to getting a child into school, of course, is, a, is an enormous uh, um, a burden and, and a problem also for us. So, so that's where we are uh, today. That's how the, what the challenges look like. But over time, they uh, will be integrated. They will, uh, uh, they will manage, they will find jobs and so So most of them uh, will. But uh, of course, uh, for, during a number of years, it is a responsibility on, on the state budget and the local budgets as well. And talking about that, this is impacting um, the 1% of Swedish uh, contribution to international aid, in, um, which is one of the very few countries in the world that does that. And what I understand is that Sweden is diverting 20% of that contribution into dealing with the internal refugee crisis. Are you worried about the impact of that on the long term in the, in the, in the countries, whether be it in Africa or the Middle East or Asia or wherever it is, in the um, source countries, in, in destabilizing perhaps uh, some of that? No, we, we have managed to be generous, to keep a generous development uh, uh, budget. Uh, we are within the, the duck rules, as they are called, the OECD rules, on, on how to use also some money for, for welcoming uh, refugees and taking care of refugees. And we are still among the most generous uh, countries in the world to contribute to both the UN systems, to, uh, to the refugee, uh, um, the, the High Commissioner for Refugees, etc., uh, etc. Et but 
uh, of course, now there is a discussion, you know, if, if um, this, these kind of numbers of refugees continue, what kind of, of uh, budgetary effects will, will it mean and where, are, where should we take uh, um, the, the money to that, How, what areas should, should contribute. This is uh, not a decision made, but a, a debate about uh, how to, uh, to take uh, the economic consequences uh, forward. So, no decision is being made, and of course we we are looking at uh, um, the the consequences of that, or 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 taking loans, or um, um, doing something else to to make sure that we uh, that we can cover the costs. So it's a, a purely theoretical uh, debate at the moment. But I want to quote a Swedish historian, Lars uh, Tragart, if I'm saying him correctly. He says. He described that there is a clash of ideals in Sweden. The traditional Swedish ideals and self-image have revolved around a pride in an end in recognition of the nation-state, where citizens work hard and pay taxes. But a more recently developed Swedish ideal has been more of a universal human rights forces that sometimes places the instinct to help as many refugees as possible ahead of traditional priority of a nation state such as security, security, high employment uh, levels, ensuring housing and social welfare for existing citizens and protecting its borders. The tension I'm, I'm referring of is also rise of right-wing parties in Sweden because of that tension and the refugee issues. What do you, how do you deal with that? How do you address that in a, in a productive way for Sweden? I don't think that there is uh, such a, a contradiction in, in Swedish people. I think Swedes um, have, we have a long tradition of being uh, a country fighting for, for democracy and human rights, for defending um, development uh, assistance, for, for doing humanitarian uh, assistance around the world, for being generous, showing solidarity. I think this goes very deep into, it's ingrained in, in, in the Swedish, uh, in Swedish people and their, their idea of, of a good society to, to live in. And I really think that for us as political leaders, um, it is important to fight for every uh, Swedish citizen. Also for the asylum, uh, those who come and, and seek asylum in, in Sweden, to make sure that we continue to be to be generous, but we also have to defend our basic ideas of what forms and constitutes a good society to to live in. So our systems um, of a generous sort of welfare society has with with um, lesser gaps between between groups of people um, has been and is a good society uh, to live in. And we will continue to fight for those, for those principles. And now it's a matter of where, how, where do we take the money for that? How do we defend also our systems while at the same time being, being generous? And we have um, done it before and we will, will manage also this time but we also say that there is, of course, a limit to our systems that, that deal with these things. You know, you, there is a limit to how many children you can, in a short period of time, place in, in school or find uh, housing for. So this is the, it's a very practical 
problem to solve at the moment. Um, and we, uh, that's why we insist also on European solidarity and sharing the responsibility and the, the burden. So this is to all people in the UK as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, before handing over the discussion to the people in the UK, which I would love to give the opportunity for our guests in here, I want to have one last personal question, or, or two maybe, switching to the personal. Do you think, first of all, you have two sons? Um, and you gave a commencement speech uh, recently, and we are here speaking with mostly students. Um, what do you? What are your advice for you know students who are just about to go out in the world um, and are attending uh, a center for women, peace, and security? So they sort of their ambition is to be you in the future. What is your advice for them? <laughs> well. I'm so old that I even have two grandchildren by now, but uh, to my own sons, I've said that I realize that I can't ask much of you. You form and shape your own lives, but if there is one thing I ask from you, it is to do something for someone else. Um, uh, and remember that life is more than self-service, so do something unselfish. And the second uh, advice is uh, to read books. And I even had a motto in, in Swedish, which they, of course, immediately turned into something else. But uh, I think you have to read novels, short stories, biographies. And um, I read a lot, and I, I think that this has taught me so much about uh, uh, human life. And uh, I think it is Franz Kafka who said that a book should be like a, um, an axe to the frozen sea within us. Uh, so read books and I also think uh, my third advice would be let your values be your backbone um, you, uh, reading about people who I find, find very courageous and people to admire what they have in common is a very clear sense of what is right and what is wrong and they are willing to live according to that and even take risks or, or uh, sacrifice uh, something uh, so I think you you should let your values be your your inner compass in in life. Beautiful. That will help a lot. Well, beautifully said. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. Now I want to open it up to our audience here. If you have any questions. All right, there's a question over there. If you can introduce yourself, stand up perhaps, and write to the question, please. First, skulle jag säga välkommen utrikesminister Wallström. My name is Tatjani Preifeldt, and I am an LSC Master Students in Human Rights. Um, as a Swedish national, I'm very proud that we are the first EU nation to recognize the state of Palestine. Now, well now after the celebration of this recognition has been made, what are the benefits that have been done, especially towards Palestine women and girls? Thank you very much. Thank you for speaking Swedish to me. Question: We uh, we started uh, this new government by 
in making a decision to recognize the state of Palestine. This was a way to open up, to make the, the two parties sort of less unequal because they are already unequal, but made them a little bit less unequal. And it op- we wanted to provide some hope for young Palestinians to say that there must be opened a political route in between having to accept a more and more desperate situation, because status quo is just getting more and more desperate, or taking to violence. So there has to be a, a door or a window open with a, with a political perspective of having their, their own state or at least uh, a, a two-state uh, solution that were, was once, uh, for many years ago, introduced for, for this part of, of the world. So we wanted to do, do that. It opened up, of course, also a, a responsibility on, on us to engage with the Palestinians, to push for reform, to push for them to become more democratic and for them to... Uh, work on, for example, gender issues. And this is also where we direct uh, um, money, uh, also in projects and how we work with the Palestinians. And this is uh, indeed very, very important to us. Also including economic opportunities for for women uh, to become entrepreneurs and uh, to create new jobs and and job opportunities for for Palestinians. So uh, uh, it, it means that we also have a, a, a channel to, to work with, uh, with them at, at the moment. And this is not easy uh, as the situation is right now with uh, too much of or an escalating um, spiral of, of violence uh, and um, uh, a rather bleak uh, look at, at, uh, at the future. But we... Uh, we continue to insist also that this issue stays on the European Union's agenda and that we can, can also influence uh, the Israelis, of course, to, to stop the settlements and, uh, and live up to, to their commitment to a two-state solution. Super. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have a question. Thanks so much, Margot. I'm, uh, my name is Anders. I'm also from Sweden. I'm very proud to have you as our foreign minister, <laughs> especially concerning who we had before you. Um, my question is very related to the previous question. I wasn't going to ask it because it's not really related to gender in that sense. But in 2011, the Social Democratic uh, Congress promised to... Uh, uh, oh, I lost the words now. But uh, give Western Sahara their... Uh, status as an official country, recognized with Sarah. Thank you. You did the same promise in the election campaign uh, in 2014. I just wonder what happened to that promise. Thank you. What happened to that promise is that we um, we asked uh, an ambassador um, here at uh, the foreign ministry to look into uh, all the um, uh, legal aspects, the United Nations process and uh, the situation on the ground to give us a fully updated picture of where we are when it comes to Western, the uh, issue of Western Sahara. And uh, he, we have given him until uh, beginning of next year to come uh, to present his report and then we will uh, make a decision uh, based on that. 
because we also saw that there was an opening for uh, UN representation and we wanted to adapt also our position, uh, preparing, uh, looking into also the, the legal um, the legal situation uh, on this uh, issue. So we will uh, come back to that issue uh, within shortly. All right, thank you. Uh, let's go to questions here, perhaps. Um, my name's Roman. I'm not Swedish. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I'm actually Australian. Um, and my question is um, about the practice of diplomacy itself. You've talked a lot about um, becoming more inclusive towards women in, um, the, in foreign policy and also in terms of pushing issues that affect women. But um, what I wonder is whether you see the institutions of international diplomacy like the UN and the EU needing to actually change the way they function to become more inclusive and more conducive to promoting women's rights. Of course, uh, the United Nations have um, definitely um, proven that um, they have been... Um, not effective um, and have been um, paralyzed almost when it comes to solving the problems in Syria uh, as the, the most telling example and the most the clearest example uh, recently. So our agenda for the UN is an agenda of reforming how the, the UN works. Um, that includes also discussing with countries who uh, say that one step on that way could be to restrict the use of the veto uh, so that in cases of um, suspicion of, of uh, um, <clears throat> crimes against humanity or genocide that the veto uh, cannot be, be used, that there should be uh, an agreement between the P5 uh, countries uh, not to, uh, to use uh, the veto. But we think that the the Security Council has to become, the UN has to become more representative, has to become more effective, and it has to become more transparent. And um, this is overdue. Um, so um, to work, for example, with uh, African countries right now, they, they feel that um, it's uh, an obsolete uh, a system that does not allow representation permanent representation of, of Africa, for example, and, and this is uh, clear to, to everybody. Um, <clears throat> so that's what we have to, um, uh, to, to work on. So I, I totally agree that it has shown its shortcomings uh, too clearly uh, over the, the last few years. Thank you. And there, another question over there. Let's just stay in this side for a while. Um, that was ooh, it's on. Yeah. Okay. Um, my question for you is basically um, in the UK, obviously, we still for women there's still quite a lot of um, gender inequality. We still pay tax on tampons. There's still gender pay gap. Um, we also still kind of there's still a big I personally think difference between um, men's rights and women's rights in the UK. How can we um, advise our government and? talk as citizens about how we can influence um, a feminist foreign policy and when, when we do live in a country where we have those issues? I, I believe that nowhere um, has um, women's rights been uh, respected or fulfilled without women fighting for it. So there has to be a political or civil society or 
media fight for for women's rights uh, uh, first. There has to be a clear agenda. And when I started, I mean, more than 20 years ago, also as a, a minister for for gender equality, the agenda was unfortunately very much uh, the same as it is today. It had to do with violence against women, to fight violence against women. Um, this is a problem uh, in the whole world. Still, women are, are you know, being beaten to, to death uh, and the most dangerous place in many countries is, is the home. Um, and uh, it was a matter of equal pay for equal work. It was a matter of sharing the responsibility for the home, the work at home and with the children. Um, uh, and um, it was a matter of um, um, making sure that, that women are represented as poli in political life and, and everywhere where important decisions are being made. <coughs> and I guess that's a very basic... Uh, and f of course to make sure that in the normative framework that exists in countries that uh, women's rights are, are being uh, spelled out. So um, I think that this is still the basic agenda in, in many uh, countries. And uh, uh, I, I think you just have to team up with, with others, I guess, because who am I to tell the, the UK government what to, what, what to do with it, it, is, it is for you to, to decide what the, the priorities should, should be, but I think that these are issues that women have in common almost around the whole world. Um, the rights, the representation, and the, and the resources, and of course the legal framework to, to protect them, to give them, ensure that they have those, those rights. Um, so, um, gang up. <laughs> Fantastic. Now let's move to this side of the story. Yes, please. Um, is it on? Is it um, hello, my name is Luma. Um, I, I, I'm press, but what I wanted to really ask you about, uh, first of all, your speech was very inspirational for me. Um, I recently volunteered with refugees in Holland, and working with them firsthand, um, I, I'm trying to put an integration program together. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, how important is integration now? Like integration programs I noticed in most of Europe, there's not many of them, although there's like a huge refugee crisis. And um, we informally kind of implemented some of, you know, some of the ideas that we think might help refugees integrate quicker. And they seem to be working. So um, I wanted to know how important is that? How, how high is it on the agenda to find and to, you know, to implement them and to propose them to yourself and, you know, to governments in Europe? Yeah, just no, this, is, this is key, of course, that you have everything from language, um, learning the language, to uh, um, have your your uh, skills and your um, um, examiner and everything validated, to actually getting um, a job and um, having, <clears throat> you know, getting your life uh, together. So integration is is key. It is more difficult in a situation where we have so many people coming at the at the same time. You know, you cannot do it uh, orderly. And I think now it is very much uh, uh, improvised, but also by volunteers who do a fantastic job. And thank you for everything that you have been doing, because without them, um, we we would be much worse off. And so I, I think they have done 
an absolutely marvelous uh, job. I think just uh, announcing that you want to, to be a contact family uh, could be is a simple thing that will help both yourself and uh, and the asylum seekers. Um, and uh, we have tried that ourselves, so I can I can tell that that it works and it, and how important it is. But the systems also have to be put in place to ensure that. Uh, uh, those who come and are already trained as um, doctors or or engineers actually can have can find a job as quickly as possible and can have their um, can learn the language and also um, uh, find their place in in the Swedish society. So integration is is key, and now it's just a matter of the the massive. The influx of, of of so many refugees that, that hampers also the development of of effective uh, systems. But uh, we we are doing our best. Um, sh- let's go there in the middle. I'll come back to you. I wish I could see you. <laughs> <laughs> see you next. That's why I describe your na- at least say your name. It's helpful. <laughs> yeah, my name is Arifa. I'm from Afghanistan, and uh, uh, I'm a student at University of uh, East London. Uh, uh, international, I'm doing international development. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, is, is very general about the, your all uh, uh, speech about you speak about um, uh, uh, women, uh, peace and security, uh, oil crisis in uh, Sweden and uh, human um, immigration crisis. Who is uh, uh, actually responsible of the, all this crisis in the world that's happening? Women suffer after the, the, the new real liberal uh, agenda and the war and ter- uh, terror uh, 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 agenda after 9-11. Afghanistan affected, Iraq affected, and uh, uh, Libya, Syria is now uh, under a uh, very chronic uh, situation. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned that all uh, this immigration comes with dirt and with uh, lots of problems. But if their uh, country is pe- in the peace, they wouldn't leave their country. They wouldn't come to... And if a woman, uh, uh, a woman in their country is in the peace, they could uh, go to school and they could educate it. They can't uh, participate in the uh, um, decision-making. If this all not available in a country like developing Afghanistan, Iraq, but how, how uh, it could be possible to we fight against uh, violence, we, we can find against the immigration. You can't stop immigration. Now, immigration is, is kind of a big, huge problem is coming to the West. And who is the responsible for all, all of that? The mistake of the uh, UN, the mistake of the uh, uh, the Bush and uh, Tony Blair that make a mistake in Iraq that they couldn't find any nuclear uh, weapon and or the uh, who, who who's the, the we can blame and thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if it's, it was a, a rhetorical question <laughs> <laughs> we're supposed to to say men with weapons and uh, money and uh, power. Uh, but um, um, of course, uh, to, to speak uh, legally, um, it is the responsibility of a government of a country for their um, the safety and security of, of their uh, 
civilians and to ensure that they have a, a life in, in dignity and that they are well protected. But uh, um, uh, in many of these situations, it is really sectorism, it is um, uh, power, it is um, uh, the, the military... Uh, um, uh, the military forces, it is uh, uh, a combination of all of these complex factors that uh, also uh, makes the ground for, for armed conflict and, and wars and, um, and very often um, it is not to generalize uh, too much to say that, that until now women have been more the victims than the ones with uh, power and, and guns um, uh, and money to, to um, be the actors in many of these conflicts, but rather the, the victims of, uh, of, of con- wars and conflicts and also the victims of, of, for example, sexual violence. I'm sure Sainab can speak um, also a lot to that, to that particular Subject, but uh, this is the sad situation we are in. And let me add to that um, that, that, for example, in Syria there were also four years of of, um, of drought and um, uh, environmental and climate change problems that uh, uh, created the ground for social unrest or exacerbated a situation that was already uh, dangerous. We will see more of that, unfortunately. We might see wars and conflicts over the the lack of, of drinking water and, and so on. Uh, so it is uh, an unusually uh, dangerous world we live in. We have never had so many ongoing uh, armed conflicts and, uh, and conflicts and full-scale wars. We have 40 conflicts and 11, they count 11 f- uh, full-blown uh, or full-scale wars um, uh, today, uh, meaning that we've also never seen so many people uh, as refugees um, fleeing their their countries, so uh, it is an extraordinary um, situation and a very dangerous one, if you ask me. But we need you also as young people. We need you uh, as as leaders of of tomorrow. And well, today already, I, I guess you're that that age. Many of you, you can take on also political tasks. We need to engage a new generation in, in working uh, for, for the good of our, of our society. Uh, it's not enough to give thumbs up on Facebook. <laughs> we need some, some leaders as, as well. And we need to meet them. We need to do the work on, on the ground. Please engage. And on this note, actually, I think maybe one last question, the very last question. Maybe let's do it here, and that's it. We have two more minutes with Madam Minister. Thank you. Um, My name is Erin Duffy, and I'm a third-year international relations student here at LSE. I just wanted to say that I think Sweden has been leading the way by adopting a feminist foreign policy in implementing UN Security Council Resolution 1325. But why do you think so many other states have failed to take into consideration women, peace and security in their foreign policy agenda? For example, only 54 countries have adopted national action plans. Like, What problems are these states facing and like, how can they be overcome? Well, it has to do with uh, the powers, existing power structures who 
who decide, who are the leaders, who, where are the priorities. You have to be made aware of, of these issues and you have to make uh, a decision. You have to put uh, women in charge. You have to make it possible for, for women also to play their full role in, in, in society. And uh, you have to set an agenda uh, for it. So it is a very traditional, um, hierarchical and um, system that um, that I think do not does not take into account uh, uh, the the needs uh, and and rights of women. So um, the um, that's why we we need to. <coughs> to both formulate a, a policy uh, in a, a proper way and also continue to um, stick together and, uh, and fight for, for an agenda that includes, I mean, for example, what we are, we are now trying to turn uh, our feminist foreign policy into an action plan for next year. So we have identified the priorities for, for next year that we will use the whole um, foreign ministry to, to do um, and that has to do with um, as I said the human rights uh, agenda but also freedom from physical uh, psychological and sexual violence uh, to uh, participate in preventing and solving armed conflict and big, in build, peace building after conflict it has to do with political participation and, um, and influence in all areas of society. It has to do with economic rights uh, and economic uh, power, and it has to do with sexual and reproductive health and, and rights. So that's the, the agenda or the priorities for, for next year. So that means we will involve all our embassies in uh, making sure that they, uh, they also live up to this. So it, it's just uh, having to state, unfortunately, that the world uh, still discriminates against women and we have to continue to, to come together to, to fight it and ensure that um, we can enjoy equal rights. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, being in this conversation with you. You are truly inspiring for me personally and I'm sure for everyone in here. Thank you so, so much. Keep no, up the are. great work and we are all with you and behind you and inspired by you.